Praise God. Let's go to the Word, and we're in the Gospel according to Luke uh, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and I brought an introduction uh, on Friday night. Uh, I've been teaching through the Gospel of Luke in our home church on Sunday mornings, and um, I've really been challenged uh, about John's message, and so I wanted to share that with you uh, this morning uh, again. And so in both sessions, I'm going to speak about John's message Um, And so let's read from John chapter 3, from verse 7. John chapter 3, verse 7. And then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the two tax collectors also, uh, then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not imitate, intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and he be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he is the Christ or not, uh, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. And so John begins to speak to the nation uh, in preparing the way for the Lord. And we said on Friday that uh, we find ourselves, I believe, in a similar uh, time, uh, politically, uh, uh, religiously, um, and also before the return of the Lord. And so many of the uh, situations or the conditions that existed in Israel at that time exist today. Um, and so it's, uh, John's message is particularly pertinent to us today. And I want to focus on the first part in the first um, session and verse 7. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, there there were many things about John's message that were insulting. Um, And I trust that you will not be insulted by the message this morning but that you would recognize that the message is one that needs to be heard and needs to be responded to. The the first part of John's message that was insulting was the fact that he was baptizing people. uh, Remember that this baptism was not a New Testament baptism. It's not the baptism that we practice. Um, And you remember that in uh, Paul comes to Ephesus and they were baptized, had been baptized in the baptism of John and Paul re-baptizes them, uh, indicating that the baptism of John was not applicable in that same sense to us in the New Testament. So what was John's baptism? 
Well, it was a baptism that was primarily reserved for Gentiles. And the Jews still, if you are a Gentile and you uh, want to become Jewish, uh, you have to go through a whole procedure, and part of that procedure is baptism. And so what John was really saying to Israel is that you are just as bad as the Gentiles. You need to get back into your relationship with God the same way as the Gentiles do, and that is through baptism. So, so that was an insult. And, and yet, obviously, many had heard the message and responded to that message and were baptized. Then he says to them, he calls them a brood of vipers, children of snakes, children of snakes. I, I don't think you'd be happy if I called you a child of snakes. And obviously, when speaking about snakes, he has one particular snake in mind, the devil. And remember, Jesus said the same things. He said to the Pharisees, he says, you are children of your father, the devil. And in the same way, they claim to be children of Abraham, both to John and to Jesus. And both of them confirmed, no, you are not children of Abraham, you are children of the devil. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And in speaking about the wrath, he uses the term fire, and he uses that term three times in this passage, and we're going to look at that in the second session um, to some extent. We're not going to get into it all, all the way. And so really what he, uh, what he, the picture that he is drawing is of a fire, and we in California have many uh, very serious fires, and you guys have fires here. And uh, what happens when the fire uh, comes into an area, <clears throat> the... Um, the, the animals run, and the snakes slither out of the fire. And he is drawing a picture in their mind, and he's saying, you, you, you're, you're running from the fire, and now you think you're going to get into the water of baptism, and that somehow the water will save you from the fire, the same way as snakes think that the water will save them from the fire. And he's saying, your, your baptism is no good unless it is accompanied with fruit. And I'm going to touch on that this morning. And so John's message is really a hard message. And yet it was a message that was absolutely important for them to hear in order to have their hearts prepared for the Messiah, for Jesus. And the sad thing is that in spite of all of John's preaching and the directness of his preaching, very few people heard and understood the message. I don't know how many were baptized by John. It seems that quite a number of people came out to be baptized by him. And we saw in the passage that he, num he, he lists a number of different kinds of people, tax collectors, ordinary people, uh, soldiers, and so on. And the Pharisees also came, and he refused to baptize them. And so many people came. But how many people were ready to receive the Messiah? And when Jesus comes, we know that even after three years of ministry, there is left with him, for him, only 120 in the upper room. There was another 500 believers, and it seems to me that those 500 believers were up in Galilee. Uh, but in Jerusalem, maybe only 120 were saved in the end. And folk, it's no different today. And we're going to speak about that a little bit more as we go. Uh, but today we find that there is a great falling away. And um, when Jesus, when Jesus uh, was here the first time, he said, when I come back, will I find faith? Will I find faith? 
And so it's not going to be any different at the second coming in comparison to the first coming. Many heard, many responded, many followed Jesus, but very few were true disciples. And so John is really trying to uh, deal with all of that, uh, that religious fervor that really uh, didn't have any substance to it. And so verse 8, he says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. How do we translate that into today? Well, I think if John was preaching today, and if John was here this morning, he would say, don't say that we are members of Kingsway Church. Don't say that we are Christians. Don't say we have been baptized. Because those claims are worthless without the fruit and so really, what is, what is John saying? He's saying, stop talking about it. I think I shared with Werner and Ella, we were talking about, I don't remember what, talk is cheap. And John is saying, talk is cheap. You can claim to be whatever you like. And people are claiming all sorts of stuff today. But is there reality? Is there substance to that claim? We, we, we have, and I'm sure it's here as well, where people can self-identify as whatever. And so, I think, I, I think I'm a woman. But I can think I'm a woman as much as I like. I can claim to be a woman as much as I like. But I'm so ugly, I could never be a woman. <laughs> My fruit tells you that I am not a woman. I don't speak like one. I don't walk like one. I don't act like one. And thank God I don't think like one. <laughs> oh, sorry, sisters. You can claim whatever you like. But it doesn't change the facts. It doesn't change the facts. And that's true on this whole gender thing. You can claim whatever you like about your gender. It doesn't change the facts. And the facts are there's only two genders. Nothing else. Well, I suppose there's probably three. Male, female, and confused. But John is saying... You claim being sons of Abraham, but where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? And he's saying, I'm looking for fruit of repentance, because remember, he's baptizing them, and the baptism is one of repentance. So where's the fruit of repentance? So let's talk about that word repentance, and I want to spend a, a bit of time on that. It's a term that is very unpopular today. Because there is an emphasis today on faith without repentance. And I trust I'm not stepping on any toes, toes this morning. And if I am, forgive me, but hear what I have to say. 
John is saying, you claim to have faith. Because if you didn't have faith, you wouldn't be baptized. But where is the repentance and where is the fruit of repentance? And so what is repentance? Well, I'm sure you know what the Greek word is. And I'm sure Sam would be able to tell us. The problem with that word is that today, many theologians and many pastors have taken that word and said, well, the word means a change of mind. And technically they are correct. And what they say is it's a change of mind. It does not necessarily indicate a change of direction. And the way the word is used outside of the Bible, outside of the Old and the New Testament, that is true. It indicates a change of mind. But when we look at the way the word is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is more than a change of mind. It is a change of direction. And so there are really four phases to the process of repentance. That really makes it complicated, doesn't it? I thought it was just one thing. Well, there's four steps, there's four parts to this process. And Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And he says that the first step in that process is sorrow, remorse. That's where it begins. And of course, that's a concept that is not uh, used in the preaching of the gospel anymore. Because we, the gospel is not about the fact that we are dirty, rotten sinners who need a savior. The gospel is that you have a wonderful life and you can have your best life now. Have you ever thought what that's saying? Anyone come across that saying? Your best life now? What, what, what are they confessing? What is, what is this man confessing? He's confessing that heaven doesn't exist. That his best life is here. So what's ahead? What's ahead? Only hell then, if this is the best you can get. And it doesn't matter how much money you've got and how comfortable you are and how happy you are in this world. If that's the best you can get, then there's no heaven and no hell. This is not the best life now. The best life is to come. But in the process, what we do is we, try, we, we, we feel the need then to sell the gospel. And we sell the gospel on the basis, on the, on the features, advantages, and benefits of the gospel. And I'm not going to get into those things. That's stuff that they teach you when you learn to sell. I, I, could, I was never a good salesman. And so we sell the gospel on what it will do for you, make you happy, give you peace, fix your marriage, make you rich, give you lots of friends. And the list goes on. Oh, and by the way, you can also go to heaven. That's not the gospel. And remember, Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says, this is the gospel by which you were saved. This is the gospel by, in which you stand. 
And he, he emphasizes this, this concept that this is the gospel. There is no other gospel. And the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. Notice that the only place that my name appears in that form of the gospel is it's my sins. It's not God has a wonderful plan for your life. But it's about Christ and what he did. And all I did is I sinned. And when I recognize that I'm a sinner bound for hell and there is true remorse over my sin. And remember that this issue of repentance applies two ways. It applies to those who come to salvation and it applies to us as once we are saved and we continue. Because remember obviously 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is written to Christians who had sinned. They had harbored a man who had committed a terrible sin. And so they were guilty of his sin. And of course he had sinned. And Paul says, I'm glad I made you sorry. I'm glad I made you sorry. And as a preacher, I've somehow, I believe to a large extent, been called by God to make people sorry. See, because if I came with a nice message and, you know, just carry on the way you are and just do, you know, just be lukewarm and, you know, everything's going to be fine. I would fail in my responsibility. And I'm not saying that there are not times that we preach edification and exhortation and comfort. We do those things. But it's important that we come to a place where we are truly sorry for our sin. Sorry for our failure, for our disobedience, for our wandering and going astray. And then that sorrow produces, Paul says, repentance. Repentance. And so, yes, they are right. Repentance begins with a change of mind. It has to begin in a change of mind. I have to change my mind about my actions, about my life, about my direction. I have to change my mind about the, the, the call of God upon my life. And so there has to be a change of mind. But it doesn't just stop there. The change of mind must produce a change of character. See, you can change your mind until the Lord comes and nothing is going to ever happen. Nothing is going to change. I'm sure you know the answer, but let me ask you. Three frogs sat on a lily pad. And one decided to jump off. How many frogs were left on the lily pad? Two. Any other takers? Three. Three sat on the lily pad. One decided to jump off. But he didn't jump. You see, making a decision doesn't change anything. The decision needs to result in something more. 
And I used to think that, well, you know, the, the change in mind, the change of, of mind must now result in a change of action. And that's true. But there's another step in between. And that is the change of heart or a change of character. See, because otherwise repentance can be, and repentance often is, dead works. Remember Paul, uh, the writer to the Hebrews speaks about dead works in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Many people turn over a new leaf. Many people make New Year's resolutions. I don't make altar calls. And one of the reasons I don't make altar calls is that more lies are told at the altar than anywhere else. I promise you, Lord, I'm going to stop doing this or that. I'm going to live for you, I'm going to, whatever. But it's just, a, it's fake. It doesn't last until before they're out the door. It's, it's gone already. Repentance in the sense of just saying I'm going to change my behavior doesn't help because it's an external thing only. It must begin with a change of heart. And so I have a change of mind because it comes through the preaching of the word and then it results in a change of heart, a change of the inner man. And the inner man now produces a change in actions. You see, it has to work from the inside out. It can't come from the outside in. One of the concepts in psychology which is applied in business is a thing they call behavior modeling. And behavior modeling basically says that if you can get people to do the right thing enough times, it changes the way they do things. And they'll do things that way. But that's just an external change. They have not changed. And the gospel is not about external change. It's about an internal change that works its way through to the outside. And of course, Jesus addresses this with the Pharisees. And he says, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is still full of filthiness. You are like whitened sepulchers. You make the grave beautiful on the outside, but inside is still dead men's bones. He has not come to reform us. He has come to transform us. And that transformation happens within and finds its expression on the outside. And, but it's not, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with a change of mind. It doesn't stop with a change of heart. That now must produce fruit. And notice for those who are technically inclined when it comes to these things. It is not works. Repentance is not works. It is fruit. There's a difference between works and fruit. And remember in Galatians, Paul speaks about the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. God is not looking for works, he's looking for fruit. And the fruit is the result of the tree, the nature of the tree. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that you don't pick figs from thorn trees. 
Thorn tree can try as hard as it likes. It will never produce figs or apples or oranges. Only when the tree is an orange tree will it produce oranges. Only if it is a fig tree will it produce figs. And a Christian can try to reform himself, or a person can try and reform himself. We can try and produce the fruit of repentance, but if it's an external thing that has not flowed from a change in heart, it is a waste of time. It doesn't work. But at the same time, if there was a change in heart, then it must produce a change in actions. Because we, we can easily go to the other extreme. You see, there's these two extremes. On the one hand, we say, well, you know, I, I, I've, I've repented. Look what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm crawling on my knees all the way up to the cathedral. I, I, I'm beating myself up in so many ways. I, I'm, I'm showing that I've repented. But there's no internal repentance that hasn't happened in the heart and the mind, and so it's worth nothing. But at the same time, if I have truly repented, it must produce fruit. And you say, well, brother, what about faith? I'm not saved through repentance. I'm saved by faith. But repentance is the result of faith. It's the fruit of faith. Let me try and explain that. And I don't want to get too sidetracked on this because that's not really my message this morning. But, but here's the thing. What, what, what do we mean by faith? That I'm saved by faith, justified by faith. I just believe that God exists? Clearly not. The demons believe that. But obviously the faith he is talking about is that I have come to understand that it was for my sins, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, that it was for my sins that he was crucified. Not that he just was crucified. Many people believe that he was crucified and they're not saved. Many people believe that he was raised on the third day and they are not saved. But when the penny drops and I understand it was my sin that nailed him there. It was in my place that he died. And when I believe that, that is the true faith that saves. Now here's, here's, here's where, it, where the rubber meets the tar. If you believe that Jesus died for your sin, can you continue in sin? No. 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 So it must result in a hatred, a repulsion, a turning away from sin. And the millions of Christians, so-called Christians in the world today, who say, I believe that Jesus died for me, but they continue in their sin, they have not believed because if they saw that there was their sin and in their place that he died on that cross, they must 
You must turn away from sin, not because I say you must, but because inside of you there's an awareness of the horribleness and the awesomeness of my sin that nailed Jesus to that tree. How can I continue in sin now? And this is, of course, Paul deals with that when he speaks about grace. Should we continue in sin that grace abound, may abound? Folk, here's the problem. I believe that many people who say they believe don't believe. Don't believe. Because if they did, it would have resulted in a changed life. And the changed life obviously comes through the power of the, of the gospel that transforms us. And if I am transformed, it's going to change the way I live. It's going to change the way I am. You cannot be born again and be the same as you've always been. You cannot be born again and continue to tell foul jokes, use coarse language, curse and swear, smoke and drink, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, I don't preach against those things because you can stop doing all of those things, as we've said earlier, and still be unsaved. But if you are truly born again, you must be different. And the evidence must be clear that you were once blind, but now you see that all things has become new. And that's really what John is saying. He's saying, you say you repented. You come for me to baptize you for repentance. But where's the fruit? Produce fruit, meat for repentance. Prove your repentance by your fruit. Now that's of course a dangerous saying because then we say, well, I'm going to work hard to try and prove something. It's not about me working hard to try and prove something. But there must be evidence. You know, when I made, made reference earlier to Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus is speaking about preachers who will say, Lord, Lord, in your name we, we preach. We preached in the name of Jesus Christ. Or prophesied, same thing, essentially. We performed miracles, we cast out demons. And, and really, what are they saying? They're saying, that is the fruit that proves that I'm one of yours. But Jesus says, by their fruit you will know them. In other words, Jesus is saying, the things that you do in terms, in that context of preaching, casting out demons, performing miracles, is not the fruit that he is looking for. The fruit that he is looking for is the evidence of a changed life. Not how many times you go to church and how much you uh, preach and how much you pray, but is, you, has, is there a change in your life? And then they come to John and 
they say to him, well, what must we do then? Well, let me just quickly deal with verse 9, because, and then I don't have to come back there later. But even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Somehow I had been taught that what he is speaking about here is Israel. But notice what he is saying. The axe is laid at the root of what? No. Look at your Bible. At the root of what? Of the trees. Plural. If he was speaking of Israel, it would be tree, but he is saying at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear fruit. So who is he addressing? The individuals within the nation of Israel. Yes, you can apply that to Israel because the whole nation failed. But John is not addressing Israel here. I understand and I agree that that, that was true of the nation also. But John was primarily saying the individuals, that axe is laid at the root of the individual trees that make up the forest called Israel. And today the root, the axe is laid, I believe, at the root of the individual trees that makes up the church. And every tree, notice again, every tree, he's speaking in multiples, Every tree that does not bear fruit, he will chop down, throw it in the fire. I told you he speaks about fire three times, and we're going to come back to that a little later. Now verse 10. The people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? What shall we do then? And of course, I, I, I think that there's a difference between the Hebrew way of thinking and the Greek way or the Gentile way of thinking. We are primarily Gentiles and we have a Greek or a Gentile way of thinking. The Greek or Gentile way of thinking is to argue and to philosophize about what does this mean, how does it work, how do we put this all together? The Hebrew way of thinking is, what must I do? Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? What must I do? Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. What must we do? And folk, I believe that as, as, as Christians, and I assume that we're all claiming to be Christians here this morning, that our question should not be so much about the, the what and the why and the how, but it should be, what do you want me to do? You see, because it becomes all intellectual. It's all up here in the mind, and we can argue about all the details and niceties of theology, but we're not living the lives. The question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I think in most churches, like this church, like, like the churches that I normally preach in, people know enough. Doesn't mean that we don't continue to teach. Because then I'd be out of a job. 
But we don't need to know more, we need to do more. Every one of us. But we accumulate knowledge. And we can argue about this and that and the other thing and we can philosophize about all of this and that and particularly when it comes to the second coming. But there's not a lot of doing. And so the question is, what must we do? And I'm not going to take the time, I'm going to try and draw to a close now, but it's interesting that if we just quickly go through those, and I'm, I'm going to try not to comment on them too much, but just draw out one point. Verse 11, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Verse 12, the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Verse 14, and I think we understand that context. Verse 14, likewise the soldiers asked him, and remember these are not Roman soldiers, these are Jewish soldiers who were um, uh, working for the Roman government, they were, uh, uh, they were uh, uh, um, hired. Um, and so they asked saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone. The, the intimidation here has to do, uh, the, the, the Greek word literally would be translated today, don't, and I, I, I trust you understand that term here in Australia, don't shake people down. You know what it means to shake people down. To intimidate them so you can get money out of them. And that's the word that, he, don't, don't shake people to get money out of them. Don't intimidate them for the purpose of, taking financial advantage of them. And then don't accuse falsely, and that's connected with that. Don't bring an accusation in order to get a bribe and be content with your wages. Verse 15, now as the people were in expectation, sorry, and they all reasoned that so far, as far as it goes. Now, now what's, what, what is common? What is the one message in all three, those groups of people? Close? Selfishness? Love your neighbor? Well, you're, you're close, brother. It has to do with money. Every one of them has to do with material things. If you've got two tunics, give one away. If you've got food, give, give it away. Soldiers, be satisfied with your wages. Tax collectors, don't take more money than you. It has to do with money. Now, I'm not a money preacher, but I'm, I, was, I, was, I was shocked when I saw this. So what is John saying? Obviously not the primary thing about repentance, but if I've truly repented, it's going to touch my pocket. I think that comes as a bit of a shock. Well, we, we'll take up another offering now. <laughs> you see, because, because here's the essence of the gospel, and obviously that doesn't apply to John because uh, he, he wasn't preaching the gospel as such. But here's the essence of the gospel. Christians want to argue about how much they should give. And you know, the vast majority of Christians, and I hope it's different here, but the vast majority of Christians don't give. And fuck, it's not about money. 
for me at all, uh, uh, in any way. God provides for me. I don't care personally whether you give or don't give. But if I've come to understand that Jesus gave his all to save me. And there's that old, great old hymn, one of my favorite hymns. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Amen. And it goes on to say that love so amazing, so divine. Uh, sorry, we're, we're the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. And folk, I, I wonder whether Christians who don't give have really faced the gospel. What it cost the Father to give his only begotten Son. What it cost Jesus to die on that cross of Calvary. And then I want to give him one dollar in the offering. You see, and that's, I believe that that's the message that John is, John, because it's, it's amazing how when it touches our pockets, now that's not my message. The message is repentance. And repentance produces fruit. And remember that Paul in writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7 says exactly the same thing. And he says, I know you've repented, and I'm paraphrasing very broadly, I know you've repented because I can see the zeal, the vehement desire, the sorrow. I can see that something has happened. Not just, oh brother, I've repented. No, Paul says, I can see it. You've done what you need to do. You've done the right thing. And so let me recap very quickly as we close. Repentance begins with a change of mind. It produces a change of heart. And it produces a change of behavior. Amen.